0: It's always very difficult to preach on the great days and seasons, principally because uh, these liturgies are so powerful, in my view, they speak for themselves. But I think the reason why there's no option given for a sermon may be preached, it is always the rubric after the sermon. So that means one is expected because it allows us to speak about these issues and sort of See how they fit in our own day and time and how we make sense. So my big hobby horse for the last two or three years on Good Friday has been about the atonement and the theories of the atonement. I'm going to say a little bit about that towards the end, but I thought that this year I'd say some things about the readings that we hear because they're the same every year from Isaiah, uh, from the epistle to the Hebrews, and on Good Friday from John's Gospel. And they're long readings, and they seem to go on and on and on, and they're about subjects that are kind of depressing for for many, but they're really important because those readings are are here to tell us something about uh, how we think about the mighty works of Jesus Christ and why this day is important to us. So that's why I thought I'd say something about it. The first reading that we read from, from 2nd uh, Isaiah, is the fourth of the Servant Songs. On Palm Sunday, we read the third Servant Song. And they're about how the early Christian church read their sacred scriptures. Remember when, when we're writing and reading now in, in uh, Isaiah, no New Testament yet. And when the early uh, followers of Jesus began to constitute themselves as a community of faith, there was no New Testament yet. And so when they thought of their sacred scriptures, they were thinking about what they had read and heard in the synagogue. And one of the things they heard was the servant songs of Isaiah. And it was absolutely uh, easy for them to connect that, those stories with the work and person of Jesus Christ. And it's why we read them on Good Friday and on Palm Sunday. Reginald Fuller, uh, the great Anglican biblical scholar in the 20th century, said, It is important that we see the cross not as the mechanical fulfillment of a preconceived dogmatic scheme, but as the culmination of the intensely personal mission of Jesus as a whole. He identified himself completely with sinners during his ministry, and in so doing, he broke through the barrier of sin set up between God and humanity. He stood for God on the side of sinners. Because the early Church saw the cross in light of Jesus' whole ministry, It found in Isaiah 53 an almost perfect prophecy of the Passion and used it as a quarry for its own theological statements about the Passion. They are an attempt to capture in words uh, and to the Passion to those who did not have the direct experience of the crucifixion the meaning of a real flesh and blood history as the action of God pro nobis, which means for us and for our salvation. So we read those sacred scriptures as predictive of the mighty works of Jesus Christ and its importance. And we have the first inkling here, and I'll mention this again in the sermon, of how we cannot understand the cross, we cannot develop theories of the atonement unless we see that the most, the best theories have something to do with seeing Jesus' life in total in depth. And that's what happened to the biblical writers. They began to see we're not just looking at this horrific event, we understand how it all got put together between the issues of kingdom and cross. One of the difficulties is that when I, I spoke about this during Epiphany, uh, I want to read this to you. Here's what we get from the Nicene Creed. We say this every Sunday. We sort of begin, we believe in one God. And then we get down to, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what happened in the middle? He was born of the Virgin Mary, crucified. What was he doing between time? So when we preach about the cross, we have now fast forwarded from Epiphany, zoom into this. And we leave out the redemptive work that was done here. And the message of Jesus as we being part of God's plan to express to one another the values of the kingdom of God. So that you and I have a role to play in big and small ways for the um, fruition of God's kingdom. And that all this occurs within God's space. So one of the biggest jobs that we have, I think, in the Episcopal Church today is adult re-education. About what it is that the Christian faith in life is all about, because we're fixing always, or have been, to get to heaven. You know, we get born and then we're going to go to heaven. And that's what we think about. As opposed to say, what's what are the middle bits? What is it that we should do? Well, one of them is to recognize ourselves as part of the priesthood of Christ. And the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is concerned to say some things today about the nature of Jesus' sacrificing priesthood, bearing in mind the whole time that the author of the epistle to the Hebrews understands that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So what he did is something that we can use as a template to lay over our own life, spiritual development and maturity. Jesus reflects in his earthly ministry during the middle bits, sympathy for human weakness as the result of his own earthly experiences. His answer to prayer for deliverance before his arrest and trial and his learning Through that process of obedience... And the author of the letter to the Hebrews understands all of us are caught up in Christ's sacrifice and are enabled in him to offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, in union with his sacrifice and are in turn transformed by his sacrifice. The only way that you and I have to understand in any way the mystery of the cross of Christ is to reflect about the crosses that we have all borne over time. And maybe instead of looking at it at a literal way, we have to understand something about what it means when we suffer. And what have we learned about that? I one time preached a sermon where I used the gospel that says we should take up our own cross and follow him. And uh, we all have our own crosses to bear. And I had someone say to me after the liturgy, I don't have any crosses. I've not carried any crosses I don't know what you mean. Well, of course, what we mean is some species of adversity that everybody faces. The dean of my seminary, when everybody was complaining and whining, when the snow was high and the sky was gray, was, um, you know, into each life some crosses must come. But you and I, without making light of it, know that we have that and we participate with the Savior in that. John's gospel is, remember I've said this over the last few weeks, there are four gospels in the New Testament, not one. And they don't agree. And the people who formed the canon of the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, knew that and said it was okay. In fact, not only was it okay, it gave us some views about the different ways in which Christian people at the time appropriated the work of Christ, both externally as a community of faith and internally as how, in terms of how it impacted their own emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And by virtue of that, they began to say to themselves, you know, this is the way in which we can understand this. John's Gospel, of all the Gospels, has Jesus uh, following sort of uh, the paint by the numbers. This is what I was here to do, and I'm dung, gadung, 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 doing it. So what we have in this passage today, the Passion Gospel, the original kernel of all the Gospels, the Passion narrative, we have a Jesus who maintains his kingly presence in front of humiliation his ability to remain non-anxious in the midst of discount and humiliation and his self-possession during this time so that when he says at the end it is finished, he is affirming that his vocation now has come to completion for humanity. And John, of all the gospel writers, is the one who emphasizes that more than anything else. So what we have now is a little conversation about the atonement, the at-one-ment. You know, the most popular uh, theory of the atonement, and i said this to you before, too. In 1934, Alan Richardson, uh, who was the dean of Winchester Cathedral, I think he was a biblical scholar, wrote a little book called um, Creeds in the Making. And he had an entire chapter on the atonement and his opening paragraph in that chapter was the atonement is a theory there is more than one theory of the atonement and because of that you are free to make up your own theory since about 1915 the most popular theory of the atonement among evangelical Christians mainly but some others is something called the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. And the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement says that Jesus took on the sinful humanity who God was fixing to punish and deserved punishment. He took all that punishment on himself. God offers his son to be killed And we now have squared the books. The origins of that weren't in 1915. It goes back to St. Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. It's called uh, the satisfaction theory. And what kind of a world was Anselm living in in 1140 It was a feudal world, wasn't it? So you had vassals and you had lords and you had people. Somebody has to pay in that system. There's no free lunch. So it made it perfectly logical for Anselm to think this is the way the world maybe always has been. The way in which I think the most congenial theory of the atonement uh, is something that is called Christus Victor. Humanity has fallen into the grip of dark powers. Christ comes into this situation and battles against these powers with his cross. And the overwhelming victory brings deliverance and new life to mankind. In other words, you have now been given the power to master the dark forces that are are, uh, coursing within you. And that we also as a people are able now to stand against the dark forces in the wider society that seek to turn us away from God and in on ourselves. And that is what Jesus died for. And he beat it because he did it with love. And so it's a lesson for everybody about how that might happen. Father Thomas Keating says, As Jesus' life unfolded, his awareness of his personal union with the Father constantly increased. As he approached the end of his life, he revealed the God of Israel not as a God of armies or fear or of sheer transcendence, but as the God of compassion, a presence that bends over creatures with incredible tenderness, care, and affection. At the same time, God is firm in training his children so that they may grow into the transcendent destiny that he has planned for them. So I'm not a great advocate of the substitutionary theory of the atonement. Dean Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral, said one time, making God vengeful in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church forever. Maybe the important thing to realize about this is that it's all about Uh, our understanding of what salvation is. For the first four or five centuries of Christianity, the whole of the preaching of the church about salvation was affirmative. That meant that preachers and teachers talked about all of us being saved too. Newness of life the possibility for transformation and change, the possibility to be an instrument of God's work in the world, the possibility to be part of those who labor for a society where it is easier for people to be good. And all of a sudden, things changed, and we're now talking about being saved from. Being saved from sin, sickness, and death, being saved from eternal damnation, being saved from ourselves... And it is a completely different view of what it is that the Christian message is all about. So you may have wondered in your past, why is it that this Friday is called good? Well, it's because of God's saving work that is affirmative and not negative. Amen.